You know, when you really think about it, Friday the 13th is really just a story about a mom trying to get back her son. This is Friday the 13th. Hello and welcome back to another video store wasteland episode. I am your host, Brian. I know I flubbed the little introduction right there, but you know what? Let's keep going with it because I like the way it sounded. Uh, as you know, in our little introduction today, we are talking about Friday the 13th because coincidentally, today is the first Friday the 13th we've had as a show. So might as well do one of the Friday the 13th movies. I think from now on, whenever a Friday the 13th happens, we'll do another one of the movies. Just Today, we're just going to start with the original, the one from 1980. So as we always do, we're going to go ahead and look at movies from that year. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm pumped. Okay, so we're looking at uh, movies from 1980, and we're going to go ahead and do what we always do. We're going to start with the top grossing movies of that year, so we kind of get a sense of what people were going to see. And 1980, we have Empire Strikes Back. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No. I am your father. Yeah, I go ahead and give you that spoiler right there, don't I? <laughs> uh, then we have 9 to 5, uh, which also is a fantastic Dolly Parton song. How can you hate it? Uh, and then you have Stir Crazy at number three, Airplane at number four, Any Which Way You Can at number five, Private Benjamin at number six, Coal Miner's Daughter at number seven, Smoking the Bandit 2 at number eight, our first actual sequel in this whole thing. Actually, second sequel, because Empire Strikes Back is technically a sequel. Yeah. Uh, and then we have Blue Lagoon at number nine, and The Blues Brothers rounding out the top ten movies of 1980 in terms of gross. I particularly love the blues brothers is a great movie if you haven't seen it it's one of those snl skit movies actually um because the blues brothers came out of an snl skit uh it's dan Aykroyd and john belushi uh and they're really good actually you go ahead and watch that that movie it's fantastic i'll do an episode about it eventually i have i have all the way through august plan so I, it's not in my um sort of listing there but uh, eventually we'll get to it uh, and then top awarded from that year, we have Ordinary People, which I will talk about because it is a fantastic movie about familial dynamics and sort of like what happens between families and traumatic incidents that change the course of their own history uh, take place. It's a fantastic movie. It's one of the movies I saw multiple times in college and studied in one of my writing classes. Uh, and we also have Raging Bull, which is Martin Scorsese, and Coal Miner's Daughter. Again, around that, uh, Coal Miner's Daughter is one of the movies that was the top ten of that year. Other titles and other movies that came out that year, I'm not going to get too verbose about it, are The Shining. No TV and no beer make Homer something something. Go crazy? Don't mind uh, if I fog, do. which is the Stephen King one. It's actually pretty good. Flash Gordon, which isn't adaptation of the flash gordon uh you know i think i you would call them serialized movies back from the 30s 40s which basically influenced a lot of uh star wars and it's funny that it came out the same year as empire strikes back uh then you have caddyshack you take drugs danny every day good of course i'm gonna mention caddyshack because uh you know i golf i love golf there's a few things i'm obsessed with baseball is one 
music, audio stuff too. Movies, yeah, it's movies in there, right? I fucking love movies. And golf. Golf is fantastic. Uh, Urban Cowboy, which is Dustin Hoffman and John Travolta, is a fantastic movie. If you haven't had the chance to watch it, go ahead and do do that. Do yourself that favor. We have Popeye with Robin Williams, Superman 2, another sequel, Prom Night, which is a horror movie featuring Jamie Lee Curtis and sort of like bizarre titles or the stuff that I like from that year that came out. Uh, stuff like Kagamusha, which is uh, an Akira Kurosawa movie. I love Akira Kurosawa movies. Uh, my personal favorite being Drunken Angel. Uh, it's not even a samurai movie, and it's my... It, it, just... You got to see it. It's fantastic. Then uh, you have Cannibal Holocaust. This was one of those movies that uh, it's almost, I think it's banned in a lot of places because it's just so out there, man. It's very gory. And then we got Cheech and Chong's next movie, dude. (laughs) Uh, I may not sound it, but I am a massive stoner, man. But yeah, that's uh, the movie or movies that we see coming out from that year so we can get kind of a sense of exactly again what people are watching in uh, the year 1980 because that's something that i like mentioning a lot when i do these shows is because i personally think that's something not only interesting but kind of important to see like what are people actually watching in that year you know because uh you have that now and it's a lot of like sequel stuff and whatnot uh, and it's interesting to see what uh what movies that are not sequels or adaptations are, are coming up and those people are watching because, you know, it's weird. Uh, anyway, uh, now that we got that out of the way, it's something else, actually. Since it is the 1980, not year 1980, I'm going to do this from now on, try to at least. We're going to go ahead and look at sort of what other things happened in that year. And in that year, on April 29th, uh, Alfred Hitchcock dies, the consummate uh, master of suspense, really. Uh, fantastic movie, movie director all around, great storyteller. Maybe a little weird by today's standards, but you know what? It's still good movies. Uh, and then we're going to go through sports championship winners because, man, I love sports. And that year, the Super Bowl winners were the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> The Los Angeles Lakers were the NBA championships. That was, uh, I believe, uh, 79-80 season was Magic Johnson's. I almost said freshman. It was Magic Johnson's rookie year. Uh, so let's go, Lakers. And then you had the World Series winners that year being the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, the Stanley Cup winners that year being the New York Islanders. And that year was an election year uh, with incumbent Jimmy Carter losing to Ronald Reagan of California. Lest we forget how Republican California actually is. We hide it very well in this state, but uh, we are extremely red. Don't let uh, anybody tell you different. Anyway, now that... Uh, I got that out of the way. We're going to go ahead and move forward with the cast and crew of Friday the 13th in 1980. I'm the messenger of God. You're doomed if you stay here. So, Friday the 13th. It's interesting because there's something I was reading about the movie. A lot of the actors in the movie were actually Broadway stars. Like, they were coming from 
from a theater background into doing this movie. And because most of them were sent over by a Broadway casting agency and the movie itself debuted on a Broadway music movie house. So in this movie, we have uh, Betsy Palmer, who plays Mrs. Voorhees, Adrian King, who plays Alice. Uh, and I believe she's the one who survives at the end. Harry, Co- uh, Harry Crosby as Bill and Harry Crosby is the grandson or son of Bing Crosby. And something interesting about the fact that it is Bing Crosby's, um, I don't know if it was, I forget exactly if it was his son, grandson, but what was interesting about it is that it sort of uh, built itself, or it's not something that they they took into account immediately, but a lot of Friday the 13th is riding off the success of Halloween from 1978, and in that movie you have Jamie Lee Curtis, who is the daughter of Tony Curtis, leading that, and that's what they, or at least for Halloween, they used that name as sort of a carrying point for the marketing of the movie. And that's not something they did for this one uh, with, with Harry Crosby. Uh, just sort of, they sort of didn't realize that until the middle of marketing. They're like, dang, we could have used that. And they never did. Uh, then we have, let's see. Yeah, it's Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon's first movie is this one. And... Uh, Sorry if you hear a little cat jingle. She's a little cat's right here next to me. She wants some loving. Uh, and then we'll go ahead and mention Ari Lehman, who plays Jason, who's young Jason. And uh, the reason I mentioned this is because uh, in almost every single like horror convention, he'll be there. If you ever want to meet young Jason, he'll be there. And, the, and he's in a metal band that uh, is called First Jason because he is, uh, he's riding high on that success. And if something like that paid for, for a lot of my life at a young age, I would too. I don't blame you. Anyway, <laughs> um, that's sort of the cast of the movie. Like I said, a lot of these actors were Broadway stars. And like I said, with Kevin Bacon, it was his first uh, starring role in a feature film. Um, Crew-wise, we have a familiar name if you are a listener of Video Store Wasteland. It is Sean S. Cunningham as the director and the and um, he sort of developed the movie a little bit. But Sean S. Cunningham, if uh, you don't really realize who he is, he uh, was the guy who directed Deep Star Six, who which you know we already did an episode on. It's the like, underwater alien movie, but now having seen Friday the 13th again. Um, I haven't watched it really in maybe like five, six years. It's been five, six years since I last watched Friday the 13th. And uh, it's really, really funny to see now that, uh, you know, having seen Deep Star 6 and not knowing that it, or not realizing that it is uh, the guy who directed Friday the 13th, but these Deep Star 6 is more Friday the 13th than it is Alien. It's like Friday the 13th meets Alien but underwater. That's Deep Star 6, if I could sell it for you in sort of uh, a elevator pitch way. But uh, other thing that he had directed was Here Come the Tigers, which is about a racially mixed team that wins. A, it's a Little League team and wins a championship, and that movie came out in 1978, so that's already way past uh, the uh, integration of baseball at that time. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and move on to writer. We have Victor Miller, who was an associate, who is an associate producer on uh, All My Children. 
And he also wrote, Here Comes the Tigers. So Sean S. Cunningham just took him over from that to help him out on this project, which it happens a lot. And it's great because then you have ah, the same creative team. Oh, she's biting me. <laughs> you have the same creative team as uh, you were working on before and you have sort of a con continuity in your artistic uh, image that you're trying to create. Uh, and again, here we have Barry Abrams, who is the cinematographer who did Strangers Watching from 1982, The Children from 1980, and also Here Comes the Tigers. Again, you have these guys, uh, guys as directors, producers, bring you over the people they've worked on, worked with before. Not only A, because you know you have that relationship with them, but B, because you already know what they like and they know what you like in terms of what you want to see on screen. Uh, editor, we have Bill Freda, who are Freda. Um, I'm not quite sure how um, how ethnic he wants his name pronounced, but we're just going to go ahead and say it both ways. But he did uh, Watchers from 1988, Below the Belt from 1980, and then we have Harry Manfredini, and again, uh, just because it's Italian as hell, I'm going to go ahead and say it like that, Manfredini, or Manfredini, whatever the hell. But he did Deep Star Six as well, House from 1985, and The Omega Code. Uh, really interesting with with uh harry manfredini uh actually you know what we're gonna go ahead and end the cast and crew there and i'm gonna list this interesting fact about the composer when we go ahead and move on to now the discussion of friday the you're third gone day. get leave people alone you'll never come back again oh shut up ralph all right so uh now we're going on to the discussion of the movie i guess uh, I'm finishing my little anecdote of uh, Henry Manfredini from earlier. Well, I mean, we all know from Friday the Thirteenth the uh, famous song the you know through the soundtrack is it's ma 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 apparently, and what it is is actually Henry Manfredini doing it himself. He's the one who's uh, that's his voice in the soundtrack when you hear that's him and what it's supposed to represent is uh i guess well spoilers i'm gonna go ahead and list that now spoilers for friday the 13th 1980 start at this moment when you hear the star trek red alert and uh actually you know what unfortunately there wasn't any any uh star trek connection in this in this movie that sucks oh well but uh so the movie you know at the end of the movie it is not at least in part the first friday the 13th is not jason who is the villain it is uh mrs Voorhees who is the villain and the reason is the ki 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 ma 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 is like uh because that is like her inside of her voice what she hears is kill them mother you know because as we if you've seen the movie and i'm gonna explain it right now is the uh end of the movie it is uh explained that you know the, the, the reason jason haunts it is because he drowned in the lake because of uh ignorant camp counselors that allowed him to die because they were too busy fucking off smoking weed and you know fucking each other 
really. Oh, man, there goes my, my promise not to curse. Oh, well. And uh, the, the, that's, I guess, what the mom hears in her head is like, kill them, mother, but it, it comes down to just ki 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 ma 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 in the, uh, in the actual soundtrack, not the script. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's what I wanted to finish. Because like, it was more, more of a spoiler that I didn't want to say during the discussion of the cast and crew. But uh, before we actually get to the movie and what stuff like that, I'm just going to sense it's something that I've seen before, something different I'm going to do, since it's not like a brand new movie that I haven't seen or you guys haven't seen. Well, I don't even know if you guys have seen Friday the 13th. Anyway, but uh, I'm just going to give like my thoughts before going into the movie. And I know the movie itself exists in that 80s slasher movie world, so you're looking at the world of like Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers, Leatherface, and uh, stuff like that. Personally, it is not really, he's not really my favorite slasher out of all those guys. For me, if we're going to actually rank him right now, it's going to be Freddy Krueger number one, Michael Myers number two, and then we got Leatherface and then Jason. I don't know, I feel like, you can't really run away from Freddy Krueger because he gets you in your dreams. What are you going to do? Stay awake and then die that way? Michael Myers is an eternal being that will continuously go after you no matter times he dies. Uh, Leatherface, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, I love, I love, love going to those like Halloween uh, fright, in, uh, fright events and the, uh, the chainsaws always get me. Yeah, so like, Chainsaws really, really get me. So, like, Brett Weatherface there, but, like, I, I don't know. I, this is me being dumb. I feel like if I were to survive any horror movie, I would be able to survive Friday the 13th. Uh, that's just me being stupid. But um, I already mentioned this part, like, stuff that I knew beforehand of the movie before I actually, like, saw it in a second light. Uh because recently I rewatched uh, Sunset Boulevard with uh, really good friends. And, you know, I saw it in a different light. It was interesting. It's, ref- you know, it's refreshing for me to see watch a movie that I've seen several times with somebody who hasn't watched it with brand new eyes. Um, and that's what I got out of it. Sunset Boulevard, again, great movie. Go ahead and watch it. I don't think it's on a streaming service. You're going to have to rent it. Anyway. Um, It's really not like a jump scary, that, that type of scare movie. Uh, it's more of a movie that uh, builds suspense. It's trying to build its world through the story of Camp Crystal Lake. Uh, and by that, I mean like what the actual legend of Camp Crystal Lake is. In the movie itself, the townspeople call Camp Crystal Lake Camp Blood. So that should give you everything you need to know about it, I guess, a little bit in the, in, in the uh, story. Unfortunately, yeah, it is more of a tell, don't show sort of situation because you want to usually show, don't tell. Uh, you just don't want to spoon feed people. You want to let them in on the mystery as it develops with you. Um, it's really a lot of gory stuff there. And that gory stuff looks fantastic. Uh, most, you know what? I didn't mention that in the cast and crew because I do have a list in my notes about other notables that work on the movie. And uh, Savini, Tom Savini, worked on the movie. And, and if you don't know who Tom Savini is, he's 
a consummate genius at uh, horror effects because he did all the effects for Day of the Dead, came out in 1978. And if you're a, I guess, subscriber to Fangoria, he's like most of what you're going to see there. It's him and Rick Baker, really. So Tom Savini does a lot of the zombie horror effects that way, and Rick Baker did a lot of the stuff for, like, The Thing. So he's more like creature horror stuff. And if if you're going to want to get into those types of movies, go ahead and see what those guys worked on, and that's what you're going to be going towards mostly. Fantastic, fantastic workers, or fantastic worksmen all around. Uh, and the other thing that I had, yeah, my least favorite of the, of the slasher sort of monster things. And it's like I said, strangely is about a, the relationship between a mother and a son. This is what Friday the 13th really is about. Uh, and so we're going to go ahead and uh, talk a little bit more about the movie instead of, you know, what my thoughts were before going in. Cause I haven't seen it in five, six years. Like I said, Friday the 13th is slow. It's very slow. I wouldn't even say it's deliberate because there's a lot of movies you watch when they're slowly paced and they're deliberately paced, meaning that everything's supposed to happen for a reason. In Friday the 13th, stuff happens and it seems like it all culminates at the end. Uh, it really goes, drives itself towards the kills and the sort of mystery of finding out who or what is killing people or everybody in this ta- uh in the in the camp camp crystal lake camp the campgrounds camp blood as the townsfolk mentioned at the beginning of the movie well, obviously you have the 1958 portion of the movie where it is from i guess at that point would be mrs Voorhees point of view where she goes and kills counselors who were supposed to be watching Jason when Jason uh, drowned in the lake. Uh, And that's like our first kill, really. And that leads into the title smash. That's Friday the 13th. You know, the title, it like goes directly into the camera, then breaks the, uh, the, the screen. And, And surprisingly enough, that was the only thing that Cunningham had and he took it to the uh, to get you know to the producers and all that's what he had to sell and that's how he got financing for the movie solely on the title shot itself he had no script and no story idea yet he just had the title smash of Friday the 13th and that's what sold the movie that's how easy it was in 1980s and now you gotta have like 13 different movies beforehand that all connected and are based off comic books that nerds read in the 1950s and all this. This man had just the title smash and that was it. Literally title smash because it smashes the lens of the camera at, at, at the end. It's fantastic. So yeah, at the beginning of the movie, you know, past that, it's uh, one of the counselors who, you know, again, I, this is all your spoiler territory. She gets killed off really like maybe maybe 20 minutes into the movie. She didn't even make it to the camp and she's trying to get to the camp. And that's where the expedition exposition uh, dump happens where the townsfolk 
mention stuff about Camp Blood and all that. It's like, oh, how, why are you going over there? Uh, they're they fixing it up. I thought Camp Blood was closed, stuff like that. And again, that's just an exposition dump. And by that, what I mean, exposition is just the groundworks of the story. So what's going on? Who's the, I guess, subjects? Uh, and where it takes place, stuff like that. Uh, and in this movie, what's going on is that the camp grounds have been abandoned since about the 1960s because of what happened with uh, Jason Voorhees, uh, who is involved, is all the camp counselors there, and uh, you know where it takes place, like you know, Camp Blood. Uh, that happens, and she gets a ride to the campgrounds where already some of the camp counselors already are, and they are, you know, trying to fix up the campground. And it's already explained that someone's already spent like $25,000, which, you know what, let's go ahead and do that. I didn't check that. Early the next morning. All right, so tw someone dumping $25,000 into a camp in 1980s, the equivalent of somebody dumping eighty-seven, eighty-seven, eighty-eight thousand dollars into something. So almost a hundred, like that's, that's insane. So I guess a dollar in 1980 was like almost three dollars and fifty cents in uh, 2022. So uh, yeah, whenever you see the the minimum wage from 1980s to now, just know that we are getting fleeced, extremely fleeced. Uh, but you know that's what 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 it goes on. And um, interesting thing, the movie itself really has very little music so soundtracking really and uh the only times the music really comes into play is like when the this monster which would be you know jason Voorhees' mom mrs Voorhees, in this shows up so um that's sort of it's not a theme but it's motif i think that's that would be the musical term for it it's motif or Jason's mother's motif was when the music shows up in general. Because the only times there's mu music is in the beginning where that, you know, the kills happen at the end. Because at the end, it's essentially wall-to-wall -wall sound. And by wall-to-wall -wall sound, it means that it's giant sounds and loud music going on. And it's just constant. It it's, takes up the majority of what you're experiencing at the time. So as much as what you are watching is what you're trying to pay attention to when it is wall to wall sound. Uh, that's what you're also paying attention to is that the music's there. And that's what we have here at the end of Friday the 13th and at the beginning of Friday the 13th, which is cool. Really? Um, the, uh, and something I did notice, I guess I didn't notice ever beforehand is all how much the music from Friday the 13th sounds like, uh, Hernard, uh, Herman Berman, I forget his name, but he's the composer of Psycho and how much, uh, the actual movie sounds or the actual like soundtrack sounds like the soundtrack from Psycho, uh, which is, I don't know, like if, uh, yeah, Bernard Herman, I don't know if, if Manfredini was one of his like apprentices or apprentices or, or however the hell you would you pronounce it. But um it's just interesting that you know how much it sounds like it. 
Uh, and again, you know, it only comes in brief moments and whenever the killer is present, killer in this movie being Mrs. Voorhees. So we have like some like point of view shots early on, just like so you so you experience what the camp counselors are doing. And then there's a point of view shot from far away. So you, you you're right there with the camp camp counselors when they're you know, messing around at the docks, just swimming and, and all that. And then, bam, we cut to a wide shot of, uh, you know, of the killer's point of view. And it, it's really cool, dude. It's really cool how they did Like, when the movie came out, it didn't really get great reviews or anything like that. Um, <laughs> to the point where... So Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert were really, like, the two big... Uh, movie critics at the time so if you were going to get any sort of recommendation from anybody it would be from Cisco and Ebert but Gene Cisco hated this movie so much that he gave away the ending in the review that he gave and he and Roger Ebert also slammed in a special edition of Robert uh, of Cisco and Ebert which is the show they had and they called it The War on Women which you know focused on the misogynistic slasher movies which is funny to mention that in Friday the 13th, the majority of the people that die are men, and the person who survives at the end is a woman. And the killer herself in the movie is a woman. So I don't know what we're thinking about with war on women in this one, because it seems like a pretty feminist movie, because uh, it's about that dynamic between the mother and son, if we were reading it really in a critical sense, it's about that. And how having so sort of that feminine energy throughout the movie, which is very much present, the, the women in the movie have their own agency. It's not like they're there against their will. It's not like they're forced into any sort of sexual uh, uh, situations because, you know, it is a horror movie from 1980s, and whenever you go off to have sex or anything like that, that means you get killed, get horny, and get slashed. That's what, what these movies are, really. And uh, they're not forced into any of these sexual situations. They're not forced to be in, in, in the camp against their will or anything like that. They have their own agency. They're making all the decisions themselves to the point where some of them have power. They're the camp counselors, for God's sake. It's a very, almost, like, if we're going to say anything, it's kind of a feminist movie, really, which is cool to see from 1980. And, and really, when we talk about movies being feminist or movies being uh, any sort of... Uh, ideological sense it's not sometimes it's not even the intention of the filmmakers do it to 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 do that it's afterwards when the audience actually gets to the movies because i again cunningham only had the title smash when he sold the movie so i doubt he was like i'm gonna go out and make a movie about how much i hate women no he, he just wanted to go out and, uh, and make a movie about a dude who kills a bunch of people in, in, a, in a campground that's it um Anyway, <laughs> I had to digress. So a lot of that movie, like I said, it just, it's not about until like maybe 45 minutes into it where the actual like killing stuff uh, takes place more often because you have the stuff at the beginning uh, where they set down the, the ground, I guess, what do we call world building if we're going to go ahead and start using more critical terms in um, for cinema or movies in general, so it's world building at the beginning, and then you have the events with the camp counselors just setting their relationships between each other, so it's 
first first the movie tries to give you a reason to care about where the location is and then they give you a reason to try to care about the people in that location so they try to make you care about camp crystal lake first and then they ca- have you care about the uh, camp counselors later and that's what we have in this movie really so with that like i said about 45 minutes into it is really where the stuff hits off and a lot of these older movies really because uh, audiences were way different back then uh, I recently went to go see Doctor Strange uh, 2 in theaters I loved it great company that was with me so that, may, that helps a lot when you go in the movies with, with you know, good people and I went with great people so there you go that movie almost immediately starts off with action 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 and I guess this one did too but it's slow build action at the beginning, and then it and then draws away, because the movie itself I think is only like an hour and a half, hour and forty max, and the beginning part in the nineteen fifty eight is maybe three minutes max before you hit the the title smash, and then from there nothing really happens until like a half hour into the movie, and that's where we have the first camp counselor get killed. And then, like, 15 minutes after that is when more stuff ha- stuff's happening. In between that, you know, you have police officers coming up to the campgrounds because they have to, uh, you know, explain the disappearance of the one camp counselor that didn't show up. And, you know, he comes in, like, threatens them because they think he's smoking weed and all that. And what's the wrong with a little bit of weed, man? Weed never hurt nobody. I mean, it has, but, like, you know, it's neither here nor there. And, and from there on, like I said, 45 minutes into the movie, and then an hour, because the movie is only an hour and a half, hour and 40 after that, is when all the stuff happens. And stuff, I mean, like, uh, it's when Kevin Bacon goes off and, you know, like, like I said earlier, get horny and, and get slashed. Uh, he's the first kill, or one of his major kill, really, because he gets like an uh, arrow through the, through the neck. And what was cool is because what they wanted, what Savini originally wanted to try to do in that scene was that, you know, uh, he, 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 the scene goes, they, they, finish, they finish fucking or whatever uh, the hell they do. I'm very uncomfortable with that sort of stuff talking. I mean, uh, just chalk it up to trauma. But they finish, they finish relations, and then they, you know, he's just laying there. She goes to clean up, go have a smoke or whatever. He's laying there in, in uh, the post coital glow we're gonna go ahead and call it and then he gets a, a harpoon through the neck and originally just blood was supposed to ooze out of it but because of the tubes that came through the the prop to try to make it do that it, it looked like it was bubbling and that's that effect uh what savini would try to do is make it ooze but it would bubble which is interesting it's cool uh and itself like i said since nothing really happens until like an hour into it jason himself jason Voorhees, the the man who who really is the focus of the whole friday the 13th you know franchise with i think it was nine movies he's not mentioned until an hour and 16 minutes into the movie itself that's interesting to to know in, in general the the namesake for this whole whole not genre but this whole franchise isn't there till like hour and fifteen minutes into the movie. Or named until hour and fifteen minutes into the movie. It's crazy. Uh 
but after after we do get uh <laughs> we do we do get all that kill stuff happening and the movie sort of like speeds up from there because it's kill 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 and then you have uh at the end i think yeah like i said her name's alice uh who is the one who survives and you know she's uh she goes and she encounters Mrs. Voorhees, and that's when Mrs. Voorhees tells the whole story of, of Jason and, and all on all that. Um, yeah, ninety five minutes. So the movie is an hour and thirty five. Movie itself is fantastic. It was budgeted for five hundred and fifty five thousand dollars, and it made a total box office of fifty nine point eight million. Talk about your return on investment, man. And in in. Uh, like I, you know, I mentioned earlier, the movie came out at the end of end of Carter, beginning of Reagan. So this is a Reagan era America, really. And movies like this were sort of symptomatic of the area because it is um, sort of a, a reaction to to what what Reagan was. Reagan was a very very like conservative comes conservative man because he you know coming out of california like i said we're red as hell over here without showing it and uh it's about you know that sort of stuff that was taboo because a lot of a lot of reagan america was about the family life and all that and this one was commented on commenting on violence and sexuality which is something that uh you know is really 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 not wasn't I guess in the zeitgeist or or what people were talking about at the time, really. And the movie itself is kind of inherently voyeuristic because when you do the when you when you see the kills, it's from the from the uh, killer's point of view, and it's just directly going out and just showing you it. And it, you know, like voyeur, like. Uh, you know, you're peeping on something. That's what voyeur means. I was gonna, you know what? Never mind. <laughs> and uh, that sort of sexual awareness in the movie is something that I guess wasn't used to in terms of uh, that time in America. Yeah, you know, you also have the subject of what the gender of the killer is, because again, do we know that the killer is Mrs. Voorhees? Or is it someone else? Do we not know? Something we don't know. Uh, other sort of things I'll to mention about the movie before we go ahead and wrap up with our my last thoughts here was that uh, you know Victor Miller, who is one of the people who worked on the movie itself, uh, I don't think I've mentioned him. Yeah, Victor Miller was the writer, and uh, I did mention him. <laughs> he, uh, he he admitted that he purposely was writing on the sec success. Wow. Uh, talk about a little slip there. <laughs> but he was writing on the success of John Carpenter's Halloween from 1978. And not only was he in, not only was the movie inspired by Halloween for Halloween success because of its big blockbuster slasher movie, but also by Meatballs, which was a teen sex comedy uh, set in a summer camp, which came out about a year or so before this uh, movie. You because know, this movie was 1980, so it was produced really 1979, uh, late 1978. 
and Halloween had come out in 1978. Meatballs, I think, was also 1979. So they're all within each other to the point where it was able to influence uh, Friday the 13th. And I, I don't think I've ever watched Meatballs, but if it's it's uh, you know described as a teen sex comedy set in a summer camp, this is essentially what Friday the 13th is, but it's a teen sex horror movie set in a summer camp. And that's, you know, Halloween meets meatballs. That's, I guess, again, elevator pitch for Friday the 13th. Uh, that year, too, was the 18th highest grossing film of the year, which uh, there was a lot of horror movies that were beating it out that year. The Shining, Dressed to Kill, The Fog, and Prom Night. Um, and movie itself carries a big legacy, really, because, uh, again, nine movies... Uh, big fan base behind it. All these uh, horror slasher movies from the time. So this one, Nightmare on Elm Street, Fri- uh, Halloween, Texas Chainsaw, uh, My Bloody Valentine, uh, things of that nature carried like almost the attitudes of the era. Because uh, when we really get down to it in terms of horror movie, oh, there goes my notes. Uh, it means the episode's almost over. My notes fell on the ground. Uh, when we took a look, take a look at like horror movies or movies in general, they're supposed to be reactions to the era that they live in or the society that they live in. I know we live in a society. Way to go, way to go, Brian. Um, but so, like, just quick example: Godzilla or Gojira, uh, the original one from nineteen fifty-seven. Uh, is a reaction to the atomic age and what Japan had gone through and endured post-World War II. Um, then you have stuff from the 1930s, uh, post-World War I, uh, a lot of the stuff were deformed human monsters and a lot of the people coming back from the war were deformed because of war injuries. And, you know, Friday the 13th, like I mentioned beforehand, and also to a certain um, I won't talk too much about Nightmare on Elm Street in this one. Just to mention that you know it has a lot to do with again um, sexuality and sort of society or teenage attitudes at the time, which again direct reaction to Reagan's America. Future boy, <laughs> who's president of the United States in 1985? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. The actor? <laughs> anyway, uh, Friday the 13th. Would I re- fuck yeah. Fuck yeah, I'm going to recommend Friday the 13th from 1980. Hell yeah, I am. Kidding me? Like, usually some of these movies I watch, you know, I have a drink, or a little, I have a little joint or something watching it. I watch this one completely sober. Fucking fantastic movie, man. Go ahead, go ahead and watch that. Because, um, you know, I, I really like it, man. Yeah, yeah. so Friday the 13th, like I said. So once again, I'm Brian. Thank you guys for listening. Love you guys. And I hope to see you once again here in the Wasteland.